0: Matthew chapter 15 is where we left off. We pick it up in verse one. It says, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying. Now, before we get into what they said, you gotta understand, these are the big guns. These Pharisees and scribes. So far, I think we've only seen the scribes and the Pharisees were from that area, you know, the Galilee region. But now you got the big guns from Jerusalem. If you got scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, these are the dudes. And ultimately these are gonna be the, the guys instrumental very much in uh, leading to the crucifixion of Jesus. So you kinda have to get the sense of, of uh, the gravity of what's happening. And I'm sure the disciples are like, oh great. Um, here comes the, the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, like, like the heaviness of the moment. You gotta feel that a little bit. And you'll get that in this chapter. You're gonna get a sense that the, the, the disciples are a little nervous uh, about that, but we're gonna see why they're nervous. And uh, maybe Jesus gives them good reason to be nervous, except for Jesus totally knows what he's doing. Sometimes following Jesus gets you into situations that make you a little nervous. That's just kind of the truth of the matter. And that's true of these disciples here. So uh, let's see what happens. So these Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, they came out saying, verse two, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now in Bible times, uh, the the Pharisees, uh, and even to this day, there's Jews that still do this ceremonial cleansing and you know, uh, one thing is, it's kind of interesting, the laws of the Jews were very practical and in, in, in the world only now you know, in modern times have, have realized the benefit of washing your hands. Um, did you know before the Civil War, surgeons didn't even wash their hands before they did surgery? That, that was a Civil War finding. We found that if we wash our hands before surgery, people tend to live a little more longer. Like that, that seems pretty modern to me. In the 1860s, we didn't know that until then. Um, but the Jews have been washing their hands uh, for millennia. And that's one of the reasons I believe why, uh, do you know, like with the bubonic plague and the Black Death and some of these plagues throughout our history in the world, the Jews were often not uh, as much affected by those things so that some of the worlds, uh, like a lot of the Europeans blamed the Jews for those, those plagues and what have you because they weren't as affected as were the other countries. Why? Because every time they would eat, they would ceremonially cleanse their hands. They'd wash their hands. That was part of their deal. Kind of interesting how that works out. Now, in Jesus's time, though, the ceremonial cleansing was kind of a ridiculous thing. And it had to do with the amount of water. And you, you, know, you had to go through this. If you Look it up. It's, it's an interesting thing. They take half an eggshell of water and pour it on the back side of their hand and then the back side of their hand and then rub and then pour the other side of the eggshell on there. Like they had this little practice and it was all measured. And it was just, it was strictly ceremonial. It really didn't have much to do with getting your hands clean but it had to do with more being religiously uh, dedicated to the cleansing of your hands uh, before you eat. And, um, and by the way, some of those traditions would even say between each course of the meal, you'd have to do the ceremonial cleansing with the eggshells and all that stuff. So it was kind of a weird practice. Uh, it wasn't as much about washing your hands as much as it was about obeying Jewish tradition and the traditions of the elders. Now, where did the eggshell thing come from? And where did the measurement and all the ritual part of it? It didn't come from God's law Uh, you know, or the law of Moses. Remember, the the law of God is, if you would, the 10 commandments, the law of Moses is the laws for the Jews that we read about in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament, of course. But this idea of taking it to the nth degree, that would be the traditions of men. Uh, it was the Mishnah and others that, where the Jews started writing, well, if, uh, to make sure we don't break any of those laws, we're gonna make extreme laws to make sure we don't break the laws that are written in the Torah. And so they came up with eggshells and washing and over over and under and all this different thing that was just kind of the ceremonial cleansing. And that's, that's what Jesus is being accused of. When they say, why do you, your disciples transgress? That means sin. Uh, The tradition of the elders, uh, for they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Um, And Jesus is about to respond, and this is going to be a fairly harsh response um, that's going to be Jesus kind of calling them out on some stuff. So check this out. It says in verse three, but he answered and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor thy father and um, mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition." Now this is an interesting debate uh, and Jesus uh, is gonna win this debate, whether they like it or not, because he not only knows the word of God, remember Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't mess with Jesus when it comes to scripture. Uh, that's a bad uh, future if you're, if you're gonna do that. And that's what these guys are, doing. why do you break the traditions of the elders? And Jesus is saying, why do you break the commandment of God? So that sort of begs the question, um, you know, which one's the most important, the tradition of the elders or the commandment of God? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? That's a no-brainer, right? But here's the problem. We do the same thing today in churches around the world. We put tradition of men over or equal to or over the, the, uh, the scripture itself. And I'll show you what I mean by that here in a little bit. And, and by the way, you know, the early church got off in their traditions and their practices got off course very early. In Revelation, you know, chapter two and three, the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, five of the seven churches were already way off course. And Jesus had to say, I have this against you. Uh, Five of the seven churches, he had to correct. Um, So the church can go off on tangents fairly easy if we're not careful. That's why I love the word of God. The word is our anchor. The word keeps us in line with what God wants for his people. And as soon as you go away from the word and start doing traditions, okay, but then there's the question, are there any good traditions that aren't in the word? Maybe. Are there bad traditions that are in the word? Absolutely. Are there neutral tr- traditions that are neither good nor bad but aren't in the word? I think so. Let's try to think of some of those just for a second. Um, you know, good, bad, or neutral traditions, we kinda have to be careful. Like here's a tradition I think that I grew up with, and it's not my parents' fault, it's just the way the church thought in the day. Do you guys, were any of you guys raised to believe that if you smoke cigarettes, you're pretty much going to hell? Has anybody know, Did How many of you guys were raised kind of like that? Yeah. It was a thing back in the day. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, fairly shortly into my uh, you know, younger years, I realized, well, that's probably not the unpardonable sin. And uh, we have a lot of things that are unhealthy that we do to our bodies. So logically, I was able to say, going to McDonald's is probably just as bad as smoking a cigarette. You're going to die either way. I uh, just, you're gonna go to heaven sooner. So there's a good tradition. Maybe it's a good tradition. No, I didn't, I didn't come to that conclusion. But, but smoking cigarettes uh, is a bad practice. It's a bad habit, um, but it's not necessarily that that person's going to hell. Um, so one of the bad traditions I grew up with was smokers go to hell. Uh, that's just totally false. And that's a bad tradition that people kind of pr- propagated. Um, what about neutral traditions? Um, There are traditions we do that I say kind of fall in a neutral category. For example, if you do them, great. If you don't, great. Here's a big one. Um, When we pray, bow your heads and close your eyes and fold your hands thus. Because that's the way you're supposed to pray. And if you think that's the only way to pray, is that a a tradition of men or is that a command of God? That's a tradition of men. It's not even in the Bible. Whenever you see Jesus praying, he's always looking up into heaven uh, when he prays. Um, And oftentimes... The posture's kneeling, so there's, there's that. But you know, there's a bunch of postures in prayer. You know, uh, Paul says, I would that men pray, lifting up holy hands. Did you know lifting hands is not just reserved for singing songs? But Paul says, I would that holy, men lift up holy hands and pray. Like lifting hands in prayer is an uh, expression of submission and reverence to the Lord. That's, that's part of our posture. There's a lot of postures the Bible gives us as far as prayer, but bowing your head is not one of them. So is that a bad tradition? I'm gonna call that a neutral position. I'll tell you why, because I, I find it to be helpful. Uh, I'm easily distracted. Um, if I looked up to the sky here in church and started praying like this, I'd go, oh man, there's dust up on that HVAC, and man, we gotta get some staff up there with a lift and get that dust out of there. See, I'm already distracted. It's like squirrel. You know, it's like that, that's what some of us do. And so uh, when my, you know, my mom, as a little child, taught me at dinner table to close my eyes and bow my head, I find that to be helpful. That's a helpful tool. But if you are making someone do that because you think it's the only way to do it, that's when it becomes a bad thing. When you think it's the only way to do something. like Some of you are uneasy if you see a pastor start praying and he's not closing his eyes and bowing his head, You're like, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he opening his eyes? Well, he's actually probably looking more like Jesus than we are. Uh, so we shouldn't be you know, weird about traditions of men. Uh, so there's neutral positions that I would say, or traditions, um, uh, whether it's praying or whatever. Um, But Jesus is referring here to a combination of some Old Testament laws. And and, and his answer is kind of profound because he calls them out and what he knows is going on. And it has to do with this idea of honoring your father and mother. So Jesus's accusation is, you say I'm breaking the traditions of men, but you're breaking the commandment of God. And we already have established that's the bigger one. You don't wanna break God's commandment. Well, how are these guys doing it? Well, Jesus calls them out. He says, you're not really honoring your mother and your, and your father because you're calling everything Corbin. Brad, I didn't hear, read that. Is that, in my, is that in your Bible? Well, it is, um, and we need to kind of talk about this. So, so Jesus is referring to a combination of Old Testament laws, honor your father and mother. And by the way, we read that in Exodus 20, 12. Um, this is one of the big 10 commandment, uh, you know, chunks. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. But then in Deuteronomy, check this out. If a man, Deuteronomy 21, 18, if a man had a stubborn and rebellious son, before we read this, how many guys were at times stubborn or rebellious in your upbringing? Okay. Yeah. Some of you are sitting there angelically. I wasn't. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, if a man have a stubborn rebellious son which uh, not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and that when they have chastened him will not, uh, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of, of, uh, of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, uh, this uh, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard and all the men of this city shall uh, stone him with stones that he die so that thou put evil away from among you and all of Israel shall hear in fear. Boy, I guess. Question, how many of us were, would have survived childhood uh, with this? <laughs> I'm so glad we're no longer under the old law. And this is one of those laws Obama said as a president. What are we gonna do? Follow the book of Deuteronomy and stone our children, you know, to death. And, um, and Obama um, was not really understanding how the Bible works. That's the Old Testament law. We're no longer under that law. And by the way, this is kind of interesting. This is one of those laws that we don't have any real record of the Jews actually doing this. There's no record where, you know, kids who disobeyed their parents. But, but remember, the law is there to show us what real righteousness looks like. And none of us wanna survive the law. That's the whole point of the law. That's why you read the Old Testament and go, wow, that's horrible, uh, because that's what we all deserve. That's what, that's what we all are, are doomed to apart from Jesus Christ. That's why the law exists, to drive us as a schoolmaster drives us to Jesus. Remember that whole thing? So that's kind of an important part of this. So um, now Jesus is saying, you know, um, you guys are not honoring your father and mother. And he's even calling them out. He says, you know, verse four, um, for God commanded, here's God's commandments, saying, honor your father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. So that single verse, verse four, is Jesus describing Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 21 in combination. He's saying, that's what you guys say. But, Then he calls them out on what they're actually doing in verse five. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And you honor not your father and mother, he shall be free. Thus, having made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. There was a tradition that had come out of a law of the Old Testament. And the tradition was this idea of calling something, it is a gift. There in verses five and six, where... um, Uh, uh, pardon me, Uh, yeah, 5 and 6, where verse 5 says, you know, saying to your father and mother is a gift. Now, I want you to see this because Mark chapter 7, verse 11 through 12, uses the the better word here because it's a literal word. It's a thing that they had. He says, but you say, if a man shall say to his father mother, it is Corban. That is to say, a gift. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free and ye uh, suffer him no more to do aught for his uh, father or his mother. This is Jesus calling him out on some stupid practice that they had come to. You see, this idea of Corban, it's an interesting uh, established uh, uh, thing of the Old Testament. A person could call something or delineate something as Corban, right? You mean like the university? Yeah, I find it funny. I love Corbin University, by the way. They're one of the few schools that are trying to stay the, the course, you know, and stick to good theology and uh, not going LGBTQ. Like, like they're one of the few universities in the, on the planet uh, that are try, trying to hang in there. So I'm proud of that. But whoever came up with their name, I, I'd say, yeah, that was probably not a great idea. Um, because I think Corbin University was trying to use the name in its positive sense of the Old Testament, which is okay. It means it's set aside for the Lord and for his purpose. That's what this word Corbin means. Uh, by the way, um, uh, the, the word Corbin uh, is both Hebrew and, 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 and Greek, uh, and it translates all the way through those two languages. So the Greek form of this means a gift offered to God. The Hebrew form, korban, um, means offering oblation presented to God. You say, okay, great, Brett. So people were saying, uh, this is Corbin. Yeah, but here's the way that was rolling out. Picture your mom and dad coming over for Thanksgiving tomorrow. And you don't wanna share all your stuff. Uh, you don't wanna share your favorite chair in the house. So your dad comes in and goes to sit down in your favorite chair. like, oh, sorry, dad, Corbin. Uh, what? Yeah, sorry, dad. I dedicated that chair to God. And I only sit there when I'm honoring the Lord. Uh, so that, that chair is Corbin. Oh, Okay. Uh, So he gets the turkey, and you cut it up, and you start passing out. And your parents, oh, I'd like to have some turkey, Corbin. Corbin, we 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 dedicated the turkey to God. Sorry, mom and dad, you can't. Like they were using this is true. They were using it as an excuse to not be kind to their parents by saying Corbin, everything's Corbin. It's a gift. We we delineated and set it aside for God. And Jesus is gonna say, stop saying that, that's, that's ridiculous. Honor your father and mother, give them the gift, give them you know, the stuff. That's where religion becomes wacko. And, and uh, this is where Jesus is saying, you guys are all into your traditions that aren't even really God's commandment. But by keeping your traditions, Corbin, 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 you're actually breaking the commandments of God, honor your father and mother. And that's how Jesus calls them out. And there's nothing they could say against this because it was all true. Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. It was a, it was a very um, cheap and uh, greedy sort of behavior that the Jews were doing with their parents where they didn't feel like they had to share anything with their mom and dad. And uh, Jesus is calling them out on that. I think this is kind of funny uh, that Jesus knows right where to hit him where it actually is gonna uh, you know, speak truth. And what are they gonna say? Well, he then gets even more, prickly, if you would, there in uh, verses seven through nine. Let's keep going, verse seven. Then Jesus says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh or near unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The doctrines, which means teaching, of the commandments of men. People are more into teaching the men's commandments than they are God's commandments, and they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Again, this word "hypocrite" is is "hypocrites," um, which is where we get um, you know that idea of the the theatrical mask. That's what they called in the Greek theater, the smiley face mask and the frowny face mask. That's they called that a hypocrites. Uh, Same word, and Jesus is saying, "You guys are hypocrites." Um, Now. What's interesting is Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, um, saying that, that there's people that they sort of have the show of religion and piety, but they're not really. their heart is not really for the Lord. They're more in for themselves. And this is a human nature thing. And, and we have to always check ourselves. Why do we do what we do spiritually? Why do we go to church? Are we doing it, uh, God forbid, like Isaiah says, you know, honoring the Lord with our mouth and with our lips but our heart is far from the Lord. We're, we're into other things, and in vain. You know, it's, it's interesting what they said, um, what, what is called vain. It's in vain uh, that they do worship. Uh, you know, is, is our worship vanity? I think it could be. You know, it's an interesting thing, what we do um, when, we, uh, when we worship and when we teach. Jesus is saying there's a way to do it where your worship is bad, and your teaching is bad. We all say, oh, worship is great. All worship is great. But I'm concerned that we've become hypocrites like, like these guys, and we have our traditions that we're more into and what have you. And we have to be careful uh, to, to not be into uh, these traditions of men. We'll get into that. But in Matthew verses seven through uh, nine here, we kind of see what traditions um, that they were embracing that were actually bad and, and even damaging. And that make, begs the question, what are the traditions the church embraces today that are damaging? But they seem so holy and, and good and scriptural and biblical, but they may not be. And um, you know what's funny about this? People that ask the right questions are often, you know, knocked down as wacko um, or thought of not having authority. Um, look, look ahead here Um, In verse 12, let's do a little jump ahead into verse 12. The disciples are already getting nervous. And look at verse 12. Then came his disciples and said to him, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? (laughs) Don't you know you've offended the Pharisees from Jerusalem? Come on. And Jesus is like, yeah, whatever. Like, I I don't hear Jesus saying that, but that's kind of what Jesus, he's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, Why? Because he's Jesus. He is the living embodiment of the word of God and he knows what he's doing. But in the same way the disciples are thinking, man, what right do we have to contradict the Pharisees from Jerusalem? In the same way, I get that uh, from people all the time. Brett, what right do you? You're just some podunk pastor here in Portland of all places, the you know, uh, seat of all heresy. And you're teaching against things like things the Catholic church believes or the Protestant church has traditionally embraced. Why do you do that? Because I like to follow God's word. It's the Bible that we're actually using as authority. It's not me. I don't have any authority at all. You shouldn't listen to a word I say. You should listen to what the word says. And my job is to say, well, look what the Bible says. And that's what we're always doing. And we always need to do that. Don't just take my word for it. But Isaiah 29 is this scripture that causes me great consternation in my heart when I think, oh man, Lord forbid that we become these people of Isaiah's time, but also of Jesus' time, where men just do their traditions, but they're not really, really drawing, they're, they draw near to their, with their lips and their mouths, but their hearts are far from the Lord. What are the traditions we embrace that are not helpful? Um, one that I talk about a lot, and, and it's because I get a lot of flack from this, uh, as though the way we dress, if you dress in a certain way to go to church. And my question is, is this a good tradition, bad tradition, or neutral? Uh, the idea of dressing up for church, what would you say, good, bad, or neutral? I'm gonna call it neutral. Um, if you dress up and, and, and for some reason, you just like to, to do an outward expression of saying, Lord, I'm gonna look at Sunday as a special day and I'm gonna dress up and, and do that as an act of honor, man, that's great, that's awesome. But some of us don't really look at it that way. Well, Brad, you, well, you should look at it that way. why? Tell me one reason why I should look like it like the way you do because I just disagree with you. When I wear a suit, I wanna cuss. <laughs> it's very ungodly. Very, it puts me in a horrible spiritual mood. So I am being very Christ-like, saying I'm going to make no provision to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if I wear a suit, man, that's that's just going to put me in a really bad place spiritually. I'm just being honest with you. Um, See, it's it's funny. I I sort of joke about that, but but it's kind of funny how we get into these traditions of men, and it's just really ridiculous. The the way you dress. The Bible says nothing other than the opposite of that. Like, for example, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'll bet you, if I were a betting man, the Lord would have a lot to say with some of the sharpest dressed churches in America and have a lot to say about their hearts. And maybe some of the shabbiest dressed churches in America might be more dialed in than the ones with the suits. Um, don't make that a case. And, and I know, you know, we get that a lot, you know, because of just for a lot, a lot of years that we've just been kind of, we wearing normal clothes, just like Jesus did, by the way, and his disciples. They all wore their normal clothes. They, they really didn't have fancy duds back in the day. And so, so one of the things we have to be kind of careful about, you know, is, is how we approach that. Um, I, I want people to come into Athey Creek who don't know the Lord, who don't have a fancy suit, and feel welcome here and not be out of place. Suddenly, if you're not wearing a suit, oh, there's a new person. You know, it used to be, when I was a kid, if a person showed up without a suit on, we'd be like, oh, we gotta pray for that person's salvation. You know, here at Athey Creek, if you show up with a suit, we're like, oh, we gotta pray for that person's salvation. No, I'm just kidding. If you're a suit wearer, God bless ya. Uh, that's great. If you're wearing a suit, it's, it's neutral. It's great. If that's what you wanna do, awesome. But don't force your stupid traditions On everybody else, because that's all it is. That's all it is. You think I'm joking, I'm dead serious. It's just a silly tradition of men. And God has nothing to say about that in his word. I I would challenge anyone to show me where the Bible says you're supposed to dress up. Now, the Bible does talk a lot about getting your heart dressed up prepping your heart and having the right heart. Oh my goodness, the Bible tells us so much about that. Um, so that's something we should be really aware of. So these are one of those traditions that people, and, and I get it a lot, especially since the Slavic community is a huge part of Athe Creek, I love that. Um, and we've got you know, people that um, come from a tradition church that says, man, you gotta dress nice uh, to go to church. And a lot of our younger Slavic generation are coming in going, man, you know uh, our, our parents, they don't like that we go to Athey Creek. And I, and I always say, why? Because you're wearing shorts. That's the number one complaint I get is that I, because I wear shorts, uh, their parents are like, you're going to a cult. Um, And I would just challenge my Slavic friends that are parts of those legalistic churches, watch out because that's not the heart of God at all. Read your Bible. I would say, read your Bible. But, But what about tradition? Well, some traditions are good, but if they contradict the word of God, those traditions can become bad real fast. And I believe those traditions have become bad. Um, a lot of churches, you go to church to be seen of men and see what you're wearing and how fancy of your suit or dress or clothes that you're wearing. And it becomes all about that. And man, God forbid. Oh, I could go on and on about traditions. One thing that I worry about is worship itself. Uh, The emphasis on worship or the style of worship. Some churches, man, it's all about the style. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, there was, there was a big thing where, you know, uh, Jesus, the, the Jesus movement was happening. And, you know, back then it was, you had an organ. If you had an organ that was real, Jesus, church music and hymns, which I liked the hymns. But um, man, when Jesus praise music started coming out, man, the older folks were like, oh, that's, that's music from the devil. Don't you know the drums is the devil's instrument? Yeah, that's first bag of Bolognians, chapter one. <laughs> uh, like you're just making stupid stuff up. Uh, it's calling the devil, the drums, the devil's instrument. That's just totally wrong. I'm sorry. But that was the big thing then. Then, you know, then, then worship became kind of a bigger thing. And, and, and now I kind of worry that we worship worship. It's all about worship. And um, one thing that I wonder about the traditions of men, have we made worship too big of a deal? I think we have. Like if you read your Bible, I always like to kind um, of you know, remind people what worship is. Worship is not just getting out a guitar and singing Jesus songs. It can be that, but it can also be teaching the Bible, can and giving of your tithe and offering. Maybe one of the highest forms of worship is to give of our tithe. Leading songs with a guitar, yes, or mowing someone else's lawn just as an act of love. That could be a way to worship the Lord. But, but the, the idea of worshiping with songs in the church, how much does the New Testament talk about that? You know, if you're a good theologian, you're gonna be good at counting what, how many times things are brought up in Scripture just to learn kind of the emphasis. That's why I love going through the Bible verse by verse because we kind of get a sense, oh, how, how big of a deal is making sure we have a worship band with lights and smoke rolling off the stage? Because a lot of churches, that's the emphasis. In fact, I think a lot of people choose which church they're gonna to go to more about their worship music ministry than they do about the teaching. Um, some churches have giant worship ministries and you don't even know who the Bible teacher is or what their doctrine is or the, nobody cares what the doctrine is because wow, their worship sounds amazing. Um, if you wanna know what the New Testament says about worship, I'm gonna sum it up for you. Here you go, ready? You guys ready? Jot these down. Matthew 26:30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There, there's one of the main mentions of worship and it was only one hymn. And guess where it was? Um, it was at the Last Supper. Jesus led a hymn, one, one hymn. Uh, so you got that, you got an hymn. And then Colossians 3 says this, in Colossians three sixteen. let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So it's interesting, we get to sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, and you get to sing with grace and you sing to one another, it says here, teaching and admonishing one another, but also singing to the Lord with your hearts. Um, this is, this is um, maybe you might say the main mention of worship in the New Testament church, that we get to do that. But this is one verse. And then you've got Acts sixteen twenty five, where Paul and Silas sang and prayed, uh, prayed and sang praises to God uh, in the prison cell there in Philippi, if you remember that story. But all that to say, that's, that's what the New Testament has to say. Now, how many verses, I just gave you three verses and we could maybe, I, I, I didn't really go into the heavenly scene because I'm talking about the New Testament church. Uh, the old, next time you read about singing songs is in heaven around the throne of God. I'm not gonna count that because uh, that's gonna be glorious and so it's gonna be a whole nother level. Uh, I don't even imagine what that is. But as far as the early church, those are the three verses of what the church was doing with songs. And there, it wasn't all about you know, their worship ministry. I think that's kind of important to know. Um, And to keep the main focus, keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is not our music. Now I love our worship leaders here at AC because they really do try to keep the focus on the Lord. And also his word, a lot of the songs we sing are word for word right out of scripture. That's one of the things we attempt to do is sing a lot of scripture songs because we see a greater emphasis on the word of God than we do the worshiping uh, through songs. So the word needs to be kind of at the center of all that we're doing. And there's times we'll be doing a song and thinking, does that song really perfectly line up with the word of God? And sometimes we'll act a song because ah, it's, it's, not as, it's not really in line with the word. It's just somebody's feelings about this or that and it doesn't really line up. I'm like, well, we we think through that all the time. Um, I love that it's not all about, you know, our, our songs. And, and by the way, our, our worship team, if I come in and say, hey guys, the, this, uh, this Wednesday night, I've got a long, longer teaching, then they're the first ones to say, oh man, let's, let's cut a song or two, man. And they're, they're like, they're not, well, what about our songs? Like I've seen that in churches where it's like the pastor has to beg the worship leaders to give them a little more time, you know, uh, whatever. It, I, I love the heart of our worship team. It's really about the word, songs about the word, but um, man, and we could go on and on. Here's, and here's the one Jesus is dealing with, um, tradition e- eclipsing doctrine. And this is one of the things that Jesus is addressing with these Pharisees, but I think needs to be addressed with the greater church in the world today. Um, there are scriptures that we have to kind of look at when it comes to church doctrine, what, what churches do and what they teach. Um, by the way, uh, when you kind of think about tradition, don't think of it as a bad thing. I have to say that because there are some traditions that are good. But the Bible actually says some funny stuff about this. Can I show you the pros and cons of traditions? Uh, jot these down in your notes. Are you ready for this? Okay, so um, the, this is a verse four tradition, okay? For Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Man, the the traditions that we've started, man, make sure that the the church follows those traditions. So there's a a pro-tradition. Here's an against one. Are you guys ready for an against one? Um, This is red letters, Mark 7, 8 through 9. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like you do. And he said to them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. This is Jesus arguing against those traditions. Uh, let's do another four. Uh, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So that tradition is a good one for traditions because it's the word of God and they're supposed to stick with that. Here's another against, uh, Colossians 2.8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. See, one of the main things we're seeing here is there's traditions of men And then there's traditions that come right from the word and that's part of the good, the bad uh, or uh, positive or negative after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Um, So, you know, it it, it just keeps going on, Uh, you know, uh, four. Uh, Now I praise you, brethren, that um, you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. So there's a four tradition, you know, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 11, uh, 2. But um, you know, it's interesting the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, is this a good tradition or a bad tradition? And I, I put this up here because I always say this. One time I, I mentioned that you know we asked Mary to, or the Catholics asked Mary to pray for us. And this one guy over here, I don't know if you remember, he yelled out, that's not true. Um, and I get that from Catholics when I talk about this particular topic. Um, so I, I'm actually quoting word for word out of the catechisms of the Catholic Church, page 2677. It says, by asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners and we address ourselves to the mother of mercy, the all holy one. We give ourselves over to her now in the, t- in the today of our lives. Um, that's part of the Catholic catechism. So they can say, well, we don't pray to Mary. No, but you can say you ask Mary to pray for you or whatever you wanna call it. Um, but this catechism of the Catholic church is one that uh, I can't get on board with biblically at all. It goes against the word of God. So this is a tradition. When, if you were raised as a Catholic and you were practicing that, um, I understand because the Catholic church, very authoritative, like the Pharisees and the scribes, very authoritative, but very wrong. And you say, well, who are you, Brett, to talk about the catechism? No, it's not me. It's the Bible. Uh, this is what the Bible says. First Timothy chapter two, verse five. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. There's not two mediators, Jesus and Mary, or the saints or whatever else you wanna pray to, you, you really only seek God and him only. Do you worship? Do you praise? And, and we don't call anybody holy, like um, you know, Mary's not the holy one or anything like that. Um, and the veneration of Mary is something that I believe is very against what the Bible says. I think Mary would be freaking out right now if she saw what the, the church did with her. She would say, uh, no, that's, that's not the, the point. Um, the last words of Mary written in history was, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> They're uh, interesting. And that, that's, kind of a good, that's kind of a good word to say. Um, so this idea of tradition, good or bad, you have to kind of measure it with the word of God. Um, there was a quote by uh, Yaroslav uh, Pelikan uh, who wrote The Vindication of Tradition in the uh, 18, 1983 Jefferson Lecture in Humanities. And he, he said this, "'Tradition is the living faith of the dead Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. And I think that's really true. Traditionalism is something that is, uh, you know, we're trying to practice what dead people are doing, but it's not really what we should be doing for life and for the Lord. So all that to say, does the tradition fit the parameters of the Bible? Does it line up with scripture? Um, Good traditions, bad traditions. We can talk about so many things. It's not just the, the, the um, you know Catholics, the Protestants, we have our same problems too. In fact, I can see where the Protestants have caved on some stuff and the Catholics didn't. Um, for example, the, the one thing I like about Catholicism is that they really give honor and reverence toward the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's table. I, I commend the Catholic church for that. The problem is they took it too far when they uh, came up with the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the bread and the, the the wine literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. That's just made up stuff. The Bible does not teach that. Um, and that's something you have to kind of look, don't take my word for it, search the scriptures to see if what I just said is true or false. Um, um, so the Protestant church, we've dumbed down communion. We, we've kind of said, oh yeah, just take some bread and juice and whatever and take it whenever you want to. And, and we kind of, you know, out of routine. No, communion is still something to be greatly reverenced and honored as an act. And it's not just some act or ritual. It's, it, it's a powerful connection between you and the Lord. Communion is just that. And sometimes the Protestants tend to dumb that down. So we have to be careful with all of our traditions, whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant. Um, you know, bad traditions, the veneration of Mary, purgatory, praying to the saints. Those are all things that are not in the Bible. Um, uh, indulgences, boy, we could go on and on at, at some of the abuses the Catholic Church has used over the years. Um, but same with the Protestant church. We have to be careful and measure what we're doing. So one mediator between God and man, and that is uh, Jesus Christ. And by the way, Acts 17, 11 is where we get that reminder uh, about how we're to be like the Bereans, uh, those more Thes- uh, noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they receive the word with all readiness in mind and search the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's what we're all called to do. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the Pope's word for it. Uh, you gotta search the scriptures. And if you can say, well, here's what the Bible says, and we're doing that. And by the way, let me, let me uh, say something about that that's kind of maybe a little controversial. There are churches that interpret the Bible a little differently than we do. I would almost rather have a church say, well, well, we believe the Bible's teaching this and show what they really believe, even if I don't agree with it. At least they're trying to back it up with scripture. Most of the stuff I see, the church isn't even attempting to show where the scripture uh, it shows what you're supposed to do, and and I think that's the biggest mistake we're making. So tradition can be really goofy. Speaking of Thanksgiving, I love that story. It always reminds me when we talk about traditions and what have you. Is the the, the little girl that noticed every time her mother, you know, um, cooked the roast, she would chop a piece of the end of the ro- ro- roast off. Uh, both both ends, before putting it in the oven. And intrigued, the little girl asked her mother, why do we cut, cut off the ends of the roast when you put it in? And, and she said, well, to be honest, Andy, I don't know. Your, 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 your grandma taught me to do that. Um, and she thought maybe it's for juices or better cooking or whatever, but she just, it was a tradition of their family. Well, this the mother kind of got curious, so she, she called the grandmother and said, uh, hey, mom, uh, what's the deal with this? Uh, why did you have us cut off the... The ends of the roast, uh, on, uh, you know, and she said, "I don't know. My mother used to do that." And the, so they all were kind of curious. They went down to the nursing home where the great grandmother was and and asked her. And she said, why, um, "Why do we cut the ends of the roast off?" And the gra- great grandmother said, "My pot was always too small, so I had to cut off the ends of the roast just to get it to fit in the pot." Uh, I love that story because that's how stupid traditions develop and we just keep doing them over and over and over. And then if you ask, why do we do such a thing? And oftentimes it's, it's, uh, it's just a weird tradition that we picked up along the way. Well, back to our text here. Uh, um, we see not just being, uh, you know, these guys being false teachers, they're called hypocrites and they're being sort of uh, you know, uh, challenged here by Jesus uh, and that their worship and their teaching, teaching was just to be seen of men and they were not really close to the Lord. And that's where we pick it up in verse 10. And he called the multitude and said unto them, hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth is defiling the man. Um, okay. Now, we'll get into this in a second, but notice the disciples in verse 12. Then his disciples came and said, knowest thou the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? So they're realizing that, that Jesus is sort of calling out the Pharisees uh, for this, uh, uh, this whatever's coming out of their mouth, and, but they don't really understand this. Um, and so Jesus is gonna explain what this means, verse 11. He's gonna explain that in verse 13 and onward. He says in verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Um, let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So, um, so this is a funny little illustration. Um, now, uh, it's funny because still not really understanding what Jesus was really fully talking about. The disciples are a little shocked that Jesus was going against the authorities. And, um, and, um, but we know that Jesus has the ultimate authority. That's what makes this story so fun. Jesus can say everything here and we have to go, well, he knows what he's talking about. But this would have been a shocker to the Christians or the, or the I should say the Jews of this day to believe that these Pharisees were so whacked out. But, um, but uh, you know, um, then verse 15, it says, Peter answered and said to him, declare us unto this parable. In other words, I don't understand what this parable is about. So this, this is a little bit of a sign. We have now another parable uh, going. This is, um, I think here in Matthew, this is parable number eight, if I remember rightly. Uh, parable one was the sower, then we had the tares, then we had the mustard seed, the leaven, the treasure, the pearl, the net, you guys remember those parables? Well, now we're gonna take the parable of the rooted up plant is what we're gonna call this one. Even though it's a short little uh, parable, um, uh, we're gonna do that uh, as we get to the parable of the rooted up plant. And that's really what, starting in verse 13. Um, and um, and this, is, this, we need to observe, this is still the common theme of the parables. We're talking about plants, seed, soil, all of that stuff that is, Remember the word, ex, the, the thing we were calling expositional constancy? So we have to kind of remember the sower is Jesus, the seed is the word, which is also Jesus because he is the word, but the good seed. And then we saw that there was bad seed. Remember that? In some of the, the, the parables, there was tares and also thorns, part of the bad seed. Um, but, um, but not every plant was planted from the Lord. Uh, Satan, if you remember the parables so far, Satan sowed some seed while people were sleeping. Remember that? And then the tares grew up. And, um, and so, um, you know, uh, this, 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 we have to understand that there's, the seed is the word. So there's good seed and bad seed. And we saw that all the way back in the book of Genesis, if you recall our studies from a few weeks ago. Um, and what does the bad seed of Satan look like? Well, it starts right there in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, this is what bad seed looks like in Genesis 3.1. It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Suddenly we have bad seed, both in in more than one way. We have the word of Satan questioning the word of God. It's one of the oldest things, tricks in the book from Satan, questioning God's word. Um, But also we have a bad tree with some bad fruit in the garden. Isn't that interesting? Where did that bad tree come from? Well, who's hanging out in the tree? Uh, There's some interesting uh, uh, things here, but bad seed brings forth bad fruit. So verse 13, every plant which my heavenly father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Um, Where is the bad seed being sown? In the field. What's the field a picture of, anybody? The world, the nations of the world. And so this is just really lining up, but Jesus is saying these Pharisees are planting some of this bad seed. That's why the Pharisees are not gonna like this very much. Um, he's calling them the imposter seed. Um, and it's sometimes hard to tell good seed from bad seed. It's hard. And that's why the disciples are a little freaked out. Why are you going against the Pharisees and Sadducees? We know that the scribes, the Pharisees, they were bad, they were on the wrong path. But in those days, the, the, you know, there was a the debate. Who was right about all this stuff? So um, why bring this stuff about the good seed, the bad seed up so often? Jesus is wanting us to learn over and over again, actually, Don't be duped by the the bad seed. There's so much bad seed that Satan likes to sow. Um, I think rather than going against the good seed, sometimes Satan just tries to dilute the good seed with bad seed. So the church in America, one of the things we do is we see sermons that have some biblical truth, some good seed, but there's a lot of bad seed sown in the midst of it, bad doctrine, bad teaching. And so the gravity of the bad seed, well, we have to remember, would you keep your finger here and go back with me to Matthew chapter 13, verse 38. Let's review that just for a second. Just turn the page back. It seems like several weeks ago we were on this. Um, remember Jesus's uh, commentary on this. Um, verse, Matthew 13, 38 says, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them was, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. The son of man uh, shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of the kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Don't forget the gravity of the bad seed. Uh, You end up in hell. Did you read that? Did you see what you just said? A place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. None of us wanna be there. Nobody wants to be there but it's that bad seed that will lead you there. So back to Matthew 15, Jesus is basically saying, these these guys, these Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, they were sowing bad seed, which earlier he said, will lead you to hell. That's pretty heavy. Um, So that's that's where we kind of get back to our text here now. Now in verse 15, uh, poor Peter still doesn't get it. In verse 15, uh, then answered Peter and said to him, declare unto us this parable. Uh, I wonder if the Lord's just thinking, oh, don't you still get it? Uh, we have the advantage of knowing ahead of time, but poor Peter doesn't. So check this out. He, Jesus goes into it even more, verse 16. Um, and it says, um, now he's gonna be exceedingly clear if you ask me. And verse 16, Jesus said, are, are you also yet without understanding? Do not ye understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth, goeth into the belly and is cast into the draught. Uh, now this is just a little biology 101 and uh, the King James makes this fairly palatable. Uh, but, uh, but if you have a newer translation, it might be a little shocking. Uh, but it's talking about what happens when you eat food, it goes in your stomach, and then how you eliminate that food. Jesus, yes, he's talking about that. Uh, okay, got it. But, verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. And these are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. These guys were all upset about them. That's how the whole thing started. Why aren't your disciples washing hands? And Jesus is like, let's, let's talk about what's the real problem here. The words that come out of your mouths are killing people and getting them to go to hell. Pharisees, scribes. And you're all worried about these little things that really don't defile a man, washing of the hands. Uh, The greater problem is you are false blind leaders leading the blind and Jesus is calling them out. And he's talking about that which comes out of your mouth is more defiling. And what's coming out of these guys' mouths is defiled. So by the way, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus is not arguing to not wash your hands. That's not what he's arguing. He's just saying there's a greater issue that we have to... um, to deal with and to be spiritually defiled more than having your hands dirty. The heart and the mouth shows a dirtiness that's, that's, uh, that's bad news. A good description, this is an old poem I saw. Watch, watch your thoughts because they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. It's almost like that. It's, it's what you start saying with your words that can lead you down a road that's more dastardly than you might think. So like the old saying we said earlier, you know, what is in the well of the heart comes out of the bucket of the mouth. And that's what Jesus is once again um, talking about. Um, so um, that's something we have to be careful of uh, or as, as, as people, not to major on minors. Uh, speaking of washing hands, I mean, this is a good, a good thing to ask yourself. How many of you parents are very much into making sure your children wash their hands before dinner, but you don't make sure that they're not playing video games that are harmful to their spirit and their soul? Like you might make sure, did you wash your hands before dinner, but are you looking at the T the rating on the, do they still do ratings on games and stuff? Uh, T rating or whatever, and they're like, oh, whatever. They're, they're, it's, at least it's just a shoot them up game. I'm sure there's no, nothing really bad on there even though there is. And like, I, I see parents lose their priorities about what's really harmful. Um, I would have rather had my children not wash their hands before dinner and have the risk of getting sick from that than for them to get all into the, some of the things of this world that would actually bring them down to destruction. So we have to be careful not to be like these Pharisees who get it all totally off and, and wrong. Uh, you can get a glimpse on what's inside of people, which is kind of funny. Um, uh, when you just look at, like, like bumper stickers of a car, this, this always tells you what's on the inside. You know, that which is on the inside, this is what comes out. But you can tell a lot about a person, what's on their bumper. Uh, what would you think of this person if you saw this on the, your kid may be an honor student, but you're still an idiot. Well, you kind of know what kind of person that is that's driving that car. Forget world peace, visualize using your turn signal. I like that one. Um, He who laughs last is the slowest. (laughs) Uh, This is one of my favorites. I love cats. They taste just like chicken. (laughs) Uh, I didn't fight my way to the top of the food chain to be a vegetarian. Uh, That one. Um, Tad and I saw this one uh, years ago. I think it was like in uh, Sherwood. It said, uh, Christians can't live with them, can't throw them to the lion's den anymore. Wow, that was a, kind of a shocker. Uh, um, you know, if you see a Biden bumper sticker, what kind of person is that? Or a Trump bumper sticker, what kind of person is that? Or if you see a Bernie Sanders bumper sticker, you probably see a person who needs a mechanic. But, um, but you know, you, you learn a lot about people and their bumper stickers and what they, who they are. Um, But that's what Jesus is saying. It's it's what's in your heart that kind of, it's sort of revealed by what comes out of your behavior in your mouth. And that's what he's calling about. It reminds me of the psalmist who who understood that truth when he said, um, uh, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our prayer. Lord, what is in our heart, we need that searched out because that's where the ugliness comes from. You know, uh, it's that which is from within that defiles. Well, back to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went uh, thence and departed in the coasts of Tyre and Zidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out to the same coast and cried unto him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. And my uh, my daughters grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word and his disciples came and besought him saying, send her away for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to oh, her, "O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole that very hour. We looked at this in depth this last weekend. So if you missed that, I'm not gonna go over it again. But basically the Lord Jesus wasn't uh, disrespecting this woman, but he was developing her to where she had this opportunity to express a great uh, expression of faith. And her expression of faith was that she was a horrible, messed up sinner, Gentile. But she was still acknowledging that Jesus was the one who would help her. Um, It really is a summation of Ephesians 2 12 through 13. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Gentiles, and strangers from the covenants of promise, promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off were made near by the blood of Christ. So this is the kind of faith this woman has, and he says, Great is your faith. It's a great story of this woman who had to humbly come and acknowledge uh, her uh, trouble, uh, that she was a Gentile, that she needed to humble herself before the Lord. Well, back to the story then in verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh to the Sea of Galilee. So if you kind of picture the map of where he's going, when he's covering some ground, he's up in the uh, Lebanon, uh, Tyre and Sidon, now he's getting back to Galilee. Uh, If you're kind of following his travels, Um, And went down into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came to him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the uh, maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Wow. Um, you know, it's funny. These aren't just a few isolated healing incidents now. Now just by the droves, people are coming and Jesus is the healer. You know, he's the miracle worker healer as far as they're concerned. But little do they know, that's, that's actually only a small part of the story. He is the son of God who came to save the world from their sin, not just their health issues. But, um, but I love at the end of this, verse 31, it says that they um, gave glory and they glorified the God of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus would say, I always do the things that please my father. But even Jesus, who is God in the flesh, um, the people still gave glory to God. That, like that's a great thing. And that's, that's something we can learn from. Well, verse 32. Uh, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, well, whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness uh, as to uh, fill so great a multitude? And Jesus said unto them, how many loaves have you? And they said, seven and a few fishes. And he commanded and, uh, the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, <coughs> excuse me, and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was, or food that was left, seven baskets full. And uh, they that did eat were 4,000 men beside the women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship um, and came into the coast of Magdala. So here we have the feeding of the 4,000. Now, for some goofy reason, Some scholars try to mesh the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000. And they wanna say, well, it's really just one event and and it's just uh, a little different perspective or whatever. And I I would just say, why in the world would you do that? Why would you try to combine the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000? To me, it's a very simple thing. It happened two separate occasions that were kind of similar. Um, but there's, there's a lot of differences uh, that would make sort of the Bible contradictory if you're trying to make it one event at the same time. And the Bible doesn't say it was one event. Matthew was the one who saw us feed, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. Uh, so Matthew told the first event and now Matthew's telling the second event. So don't, don't listen to some of these commentaries that say it's actually the same event. They're trying to smash something together that doesn't need to be smashed, smashed together. Um, so it has a lot to do with things like where they were. Um, By the way, this place, Magdala, I'm excited to bring uh, you guys there and bring some footage back from Magdala. Did you know they just found in Magdala, a little town there today, uh, a first century synagogue that is in fact a a synagogue Jesus walked in and it's still sitting as that synagogue. The other synagogue I show you from Capernaum, it's the foundation stone where Jesus walked, but the synagogue itself is much later than the time of Christ, the, uh, the part above ground. But the one they found maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years ago in Magdala, uh, it's literally like the synagogue as it sat during the time of Christ. And they just found that there, which is kind of cool. But, um, but the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 are different. Let, let's note just a few of the differences between the 5,000 and the 4,000. Uh, first of all, the 5,000 was predominantly Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 would be predominantly Gentiles and it had to do with their location. Uh, which we'll talk about that. Um, uh, The 5,000 happened in Galilee, but the feeding of the 4,000 happened in the Decapolis, we're told. Um, By the way, there's more context to that if you're taking notes. Mark chapter seven, verse 31, tells us this. Uh, Again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came to the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. So that's where this happened, is in one of the Decapolis cities. Um, uh, What is a Decapolis city? Uh, Decapolis is the Greek word. Deca means 10, city, polis. Um, and the 10 cities of that time would be Damascus, uh, 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 Opotin, Philadelphia, uh, Rafana, uh, Scythiopolis, uh, Gadara, uh, Hippondion, Pella, Galassa, and Canatha, or Gil is another name for that last one. But this idea of the Decapolis, Decapolis, is Jesus spent a lot of time in going all, and we forget this, going all over the Decapolis cities. He went from those towns. And a lot of those cities were in what is now known as Jordan, uh, the modern day Jordan. So people don't really picture Jesus hanging out in what is today Jordan, but he did. And he uh, did his work there. Uh, so this was one of those Decapolis cities. So back to our list here of uh, the feeding of 5,000. Um, one, there was five loaves and two fish, uh, 12 baskets left over. The other had seven loaves and a few fish and there were seven baskets left over. Um, There might be some interesting truths tucked away in this that we're missing. Uh, Numbers are important, and there's a reason the Bible tells us about the numbers that was left. Um, 12 is often a number of government, seven is the number of completion and perfection. Um, So there's something about this where the Gentiles are getting the completion perfection treatment Whereas Israel, that's supposed to be governed by God. Like there's some interesting correlations you could make if you're wanting to kind of think through what maybe some of these little things mean or if there is uh, truth embedded in some of these details. But also uh, the feeding of the 5,000 happened in the spring. The uh, feeding of the 4,000 happened in the summer. And then lastly, Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, they were with them for only one day, but the feeding of the 4,000 people were there for three days, um, which is uh, kind of a long, they were probably getting hungry. But notice nobody was complaining. Nobody asked for food. In the first time they're like, oh, the people send them home. They're all getting hungry. That was only the one day group. This group seems to be maybe more passionate about being with Jesus than the 5,000 group because they're like, they aren't even bringing up their hunger and they've been there for three days. And Jesus, having compassion on them, has to say, hey guys, we better feed these guys. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. These Gentiles were hungry for Jesus more than they were maybe even hungry for bread. And I think that's kind of interesting about the story. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, we'll look at that next week. And verse one, we'll kind of set the stage. The Pharisees also came with the Sadducees, came tempting, desiring him that he would show them a sign from heaven. And we're gonna see them trying to tempt and trick and trap Jesus And that's, again, not a good future. Uh, You know, Jesus is going to go to the cross willingly. It wasn't because they tempted him and tricked him into going to the cross. He would go to the cross willingly for a whole nother reason than they knew. But we'll see that next week as we go. Well, let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are for your word that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And how we pray, Lord, that you would just continue to let these words percolate in our hearts and our minds, Lord. And Um, I pray that we wouldn't be more into tradition and the things that don't matter than the things that really do. Help us to sort those things out. Give us wisdom, Lord. And I pray blessing upon your church as we think through those things. In Jesus' name, amen.